Hello and welcome to the National Archives podcast series. Here we have two stories from our medieval record specialists. In the first story, told by Paul Dreiber, a band of men from Coventry plot to kill King Edward II and his supporters, the dispensers, using wax effigies and pins. Our second story, told by Sean Cunningham, focuses on a mole catcher who spins a treasonous tale involving a magical dismembered hand. It happens to be one of the earliest and longest English language statements in legal history, and it might even be the earliest short story in English. Hello, my name is Paul Dreibra. I'm Principal Record Specialist for Medieval Records at the National Archives. Well, my own particular period of interest, my own research interest, is in the reign of Edward II, which is the sort of first third of the 14th century. Edward II, as I'm sure you know, is one of England's least successful kings, He's the guy who loses the Battle of Bannockburn to Robert Bruce. He's also the first English king to be deposed. And there is the famous lurid story about his death, supposed death at Barclay Castle. Obviously, much of what's been written about Edward's reign is generally in agreement that you know he's not a successful king. There are serious problems in the reign. One of the most serious problems is Edward's reliance on what are called favourites. So individuals who have far too much of a close relationship with the king they manipulate him to for their own personal gain whether it be their own personal gain in terms of land or titles or whether it's for better marriages for their children their family that kind of thing to improve their connections or whether as certain historians have argued in the case of somebody like Piers Gaveston it's actually a sexual relationship with the king that he enjoys Now, the record we've got here is very interesting because it relates to the other, probably the more sinister and more powerful favourite of Edward's reign, Hugh Dispenser the Younger. So Hugh is the son of another Hugh Dispenser, who by this time is in his sort of 60s, 70s. He's he's a long-time royal servant. And his son, Hugh Jr., comes to prominence in around 1318 when he's made Chamberlain of the royal household. And that kind of gives him personal access and personal intimacy, though not necessarily sexual, with the king. He exploits that completely. He's, he's one of the ultimate politicians. He basically goes out of his way to build up a massive landed estate for himself across the country, particularly in the Welsh marches and over in Ireland, and basically controlling access to the king and access to patronage. And as a result of his rise to prominence, there's a, a civil war in England, sort of in 1321-22, the result of which is that kind of baronial opposition, as they call it, to Edward's reign, is kind of curtailed. Lots of magnet, lots of aristocrats are executed or exiled or put in prison or heavily ransomed. And basically for the next four years has been turned by some historians a tyranny where Edward and the dispensers kind of run roughshod over the rights of their peers and of, and of the populace. How true that is, is up for debate. But the general, obviously the general thrust of historical um, interpretation narrative is that this is a period which you know, leads ultimately to Edward's deposition and ultimately Hugh Dispenser's own execution once um, Edward's Queen Isabella invades England in September 1326 and they capture Hugh and his father and execute them both. Hugh is executed particularly brutally and that he's uh, strapped to a 50-foot-high ladder at Hereford and is then kind of 
eviscerated, has his genitals cut off in front of him, has his heart ripped out, and then is obviously drawn and quartered. It's pretty brutal that way. So the story we have relates to a plot against Hugh which takes place in around 1323-24. It's in the record of the main plea roll of the King's Bench from Hillary term 1324-5, which is the 18th year of um, Edward II's reign. The King's Bench is obviously the, the, the highest criminal court in the land and it deals with appeals and in this case obviously plotting treason. This is basically treason against the King and his supporters. So, effectively, this is a plot revealed to the king by one of the plotters, a guy called Robert Le Marshal of Leicester. And the reason why it's on the, the king's bench roll is he, he's part of this supposed plot. Eventually, it gets revealed and he turns king's evidence. And the trial then follows the process of his story and how he tries to implicate the other plotters in order to liberate himself from the threat of treason. So effectively what happens is he comes into court and he recognises that on the 31st of October 1324 he was lodging with an individual called Master John of Nottingham, and I'm quoting now, who had become a necromancer and lived in Coventry. Now a necromancy in, in this period can just mean somebody working in the black arts, a magician, a conjurer, that kind of thing. It also has another connotation of um, trying to predict the future by communing with the dead, but I think in this case the evidence seems to be that it's just more he used to use his magical skills to bring about the downfall of the king and, the, and his favourites. So, Robert admits that on the 30th of November 1323, he and 27 local men, and that includes prominent tradesmen and even an apprentice at court, a guy called John, son of Hugh of Merrington, who's one of Coventry's leading merchants, one of the leading wool merchants in the town, and civic figures. These men come to, come to John and Robert, and they ask if they would keep their counsel, um, for then they would have great profit. And they kind of bind themselves together, and they agree that they'll, both sides will be discreet about this, and they won't share the secret with anybody else. So they claimed, that the 27 guys claimed, that they could not go on living on account of the harsh treatment meted out to them by the prior of Coventry, that's prior, the, the cathedral prior of Coventry, and his maintenance by the king, his favourites, Hugh Dispenser, the Earl of Winchester, who's the older Hugh, and Hugh Dispenser, the younger. And that was to their destruction and that of the city. Now, the prior at this time appears to be a guy called Henry of Leicester, and he had received money from the lands and possessions of those people who'd been caught or captured in rebellion in 1322. So he'd personally benefited from the civil war and the Dispenser's rise to power. And clearly, there's a feeling in Coventry that he's got too much influence. And a lot of this story probably actually relates to local power politics or local disagreements in Coventry itself, as much as the national picture. Um, so, in return for a gift of £20 to Master John and a guarantee that he could stay in any religious house he wanted to in the country and £15 to Robert Le Marshall the 27 individuals ask Master John whether he would undertake his necromancy and arts to kill the king, the dispensers, the prior, and the seller of Coventry, the guy who looks after the stores in the priory, Nicholas Crump, who's the steward of the prior, and an individual who we know not very much more about called Richard of Sow. Sow's a local village, village local to Coventry. So on the 11th of December, 1323, an advance part payment was made to Master John and to Robert, and a delivery was made of seven pounds of wax and two L's of cloth. 
Now from this, Master John fashioned seven wax effigies, one of which even had a little crown to represent the king, just so they knew when they were performing their arts who they were actually targeting. So they begin to ply their arts, as it says in the document, in an old house outside Coventry. It's kind of, you know, it's not quite a Hansel and Gretel in the woods, but it's, you can imagine what's going on. So they remain there until the 26th of May, of May following. So they're basically in this house for the best part of six months. It gets to April, and in late April, Master John sharpens a lead pin and he stabs it into the forehead of the effigy of Richard of Sow. And they decide they're going to use Richard because he's a minor figure and they, can, they know him and they can test whether that necromancy is going to work or not. Next morning, Richard is found in a terrible state. He's writhing around in agony. He's screaming out in pain. He can't recognise anybody. He doesn't know what's going on. And they think, hmm, clearly this is working. You know, get in. We're, we're, we're on our way here. He then remains in this state. That for some reason, they don't take the pin out. They leave the pin in until the 19th of May. So basically, they leave the poor guy in torture for four weeks. Then, on the 19th of May, Master John decides he's going to take out the pin and he stabs the effigy in the heart. Four days later, poor Richard of Sow drops dead. Now, that's effectively the story. Then the plot's revealed and the Sheriff of Warwickshire was ordered to arrest the culprits. So they all submit and they're committed to the Marshal of the King's household. Um, Robert the Marshal, as I say, then kind of turns King, King's evidence in an attempt to free himself, because this stage he's, he's what's called an approver. So if you're involved in some kind of criminal activity and you then turn evidence and your case is proven and they're found guilty, you are then potentially let free. If, however, as happened here, a jury acquits the 27 named individuals then obviously Robert the Marshal is then implicated and he's brought to trial for a false appeal. Master John, in the meantime, has unfortunately died in prison. So we know what happens to him. This is where the story kind of ends, though, in that Robert the Marshal is committed again to the Marshal for a false plea and further investigations are to take place. So that's kind of the end of the story in the, in the document itself. Obviously, it's not the end of the story. Within 18 months... An invasion led by the Queen, as I say, and her believed to be lover, a guy called Roger Mortimer, who's the Lord of Wigmore in the Welsh Marches, who is one of the, the guys who'd rebelled in 1321-2, had been imprisoned in the Tower, but unusually had escaped from the Tower. It's very unusual. Very few people in obviously in the medieval period escaped from the Tower, but Roger Mortimer was one of the, the few to do it. And it's a brilliant story in itself, in that he has kind of a a meal held for the guards who are holding him captive in the Tower of London, on the 1st of August, 1323. And at this meal, basically, he, he managed to, to, to buy off one of the other guards. They drug his guards. So all these guys are like in a complete stupor. Meanwhile, outside, somebody's waiting with a rope ladder and scaling others, which they smuggle into the, into the tower, and he's able to escape over the walls into a waiting boat and flee to France. He then eventually strikes up a relationship with Queen Isabella, they're certainly believed to be lovers by most historians. They lead an invasion from, um, from northern Europe in September 1326. Effectively, nobody stands in their way. All of the king's supporters drift away. They all rally to the queen. The Spencers and Edward flee from London. They flee westwards. Most historians think they're trying to make for Wales. I kind of have argued that they might be trying to make for Ireland because they would get a slightly more welcome reception potentially in Ireland 
Unfortunately, when they board the ship, they get sort of the winds against them and it blows them back into the, onto the Welsh coast. So end, they end up bedraggled, like running around in South Wales. Eventually, they're captured somewhere near Neath in sort of mid, mid, mid-November. Edward is taken into custody. Hugh Dispenser, the younger, who's fed with Edward at this time, is captured. And as I say, he's taken to Hereford, where he's uh, brutally put to death. And then there's a parliament in January, February 1327, which basically brings about the deposition of Edward II. Although technically it's an abdication because he abdicates his right to his son, but really it's, it's a deposition. You know, Parliament deposes him. So ultimately, although this plot that we've got detailed here doesn't actually work, it doesn't end up with the king dead. Two years later, the king, well, he's in captivity, Hugh Spencer's dead. And then in September 1327, it's reported that Edward II has died. He is presumed to have been murdered in Barclay Castle, and he's then buried in Gloucester in December. However, recently, a couple of historians, most notably Ian Mortimer, have argued, actually, he doesn't die. And this is a really interesting story in itself. What the truth is, I am not willing to commit myself at this point, but there is now a really important new debate on the fate of the fu- you know, a fugitive king, because Edward supposedly you know, kills a porter who's put in his place, bury, they bury a porter in his place, and he flees first to Ireland, then to Europe, becomes a hermit, sort of wandering around Europe, eventually is reunited with his son very briefly in Cologne during the Hundred Years' War, and dies then, an old man in Italy. And there's actually a research project in Italy at the moment called the Al Romala Project, which is looking into the Italian evidence to see what there is over there to verify or not this story because you know, in Italy there is a tradition that this English king stayed there 600 years ago so that's an entirely different story in itself this is just obviously one element there may actually been something to this kind of if we want to call it a voodoo plot because shortly before this plot is supposed to have got underway in, the, in September 1323 the Pope, Pope John XXII he actually replies to a letter from Hugh Dispenser the Younger in which Hugh had complained to the Pope that um, he was being threatened by magical and secret dealings. The Pope basically, well, is having none of it, and basically tells Hugh to return to God with his whole heart and to make a good confession and such satisfaction as shall be enjoined. So actually, you know, at the time, Hugh himself believes there's a plot against him. Here is some kind of evidence, whether we take it at face value or not, I'm not sure, that people out there were potentially using the kind of magic that he believed was being used against him. So there, there are some really, really fascinating stories of this nature relating to treason against the crown in our legal records here, in certainly in the medieval period anyway. Hello, my name is Sean Cunningham, and I work in the medieval records team here at the National Archives, and I'm going to tell you a story about a mole catcher. What we have in our legal records are various statements by people involved in legal cases, most of which are very formulaic and don't really tell us very much, but just occasionally something really jumps out of the records which warrants a bit more attention. And one of these is a statement from 1440 of a man who basically was trying to poison the king. 
and his story is written out in English at great length simply because he didn't know any other language and wanted it recorded in the way he spoke. So what we have is The Mole Catcher's Tale, The Dangers of Becoming a Medieval Supergrass. This is one of the earliest and longest English language statements in legal history. It comes from 1439 to 40, and... It might even be the earliest short story in English, simply because it's so fantastic. It's about gossip and propaganda and how these things are used to incriminate people and opponents at times of unrest and uh, pressure on economies and pressure over warfare. So this is the period of the Hundred Years' War, right at the end, where the English are losing a lot of their lands in France, which had been conquered for a couple of centuries, and it means that people are feeling the pressure on prices of wheat and they feel like their leadership isn't good enough, and so they're taking direct action by trying to kill the king and his counsellors. The case contains a story that was judged to be a complete lie, but which does indicate that all medieval monarchs had to be wary of plotters, poisoners, and would-be murderers. So it involves a man called Robert Goodgroom. He's a felon, he's been caught stealing silver from churches, and he knew the case against him was cast iron, he's been caught red-handed, and he's going to hang. So to avoid the death sentence, he decides to turn King's evidence and implicate others in the more serious crime of treason. And the following amazing tale is what he came up with. Approvers had to take an oath that they would not charge anyone of other crimes unless they knew them to be guilty. Otherwise, they would suffer the penalty for that crime that was alleged. Goodgroom thus swore before the coroner of Kent on the 12th of January, 1440, that in the autumn of 1438 he came to the manor of Graveney in Kent to teach the craft of mole-catching to one Richard Croft. When he went into the garden of the house, he noticed a fire in an outhouse used for making cheese. And when he couldn't get through the door, he tried to smash through the window, but he had a look and he saw the arm and hand of a dead man on a windowsill. When he told Croft of what he'd seen... Croft offered to show him a different kind of craft. He was told that if a burning candle is put in the severed hand of a dead man that has been buried for nine days and nights, then whoever carried the arm would become invisible. Also, and more grisly, if the flesh of a dead man is dug up after 40 days and nights and mixed with five secret herbs in a mortar, herbs not named, then buried in pots with wax lids and then distilled with pure water, only three drops of the liquid would be needed to poison a man, since this is known to be the deadliest poison in the world. To get hold of one of the pots, Goodgroom was directed to the house of John Sinclair in Faversham. He found the pot in the garden, and when it was opened, it smoked and gave off a foul stink. He was sworn to keep the Sinclair's secret that there should not be so many lords in the land because they had led the country to ruin in the French wars and had failed to keep grain prices low. Sinclair gave the names of his associates and confessed that they planned to murder King Henry VI, his uncle, Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, and the Duke of Norfolk, the key men who'd let the war run down, using the poison distilled in Sinclair's garden. Goodgroom then went back to mole-catching for a while, almost forgetting about his story, until January 1439, when he rode up to York to meet with John Liverton at the Hart and Swan Inn. He needed proof that the poison worked, and he got it. The power of the poison was proved when Liverton killed a black dog with three drops of it, and the record 
has a rather sad picture of the dog flipping over with its four legs stiff in the air instantly. This was serious poison. Goodgroom was then instructed to meet with the rest of his gang at a time assigned to carry out their plan to murder the king. They'd made half a pint of poison, which would probably be enough to kill several men. At that point, Goodgroom decided to reveal the plot and name his associates. He also claimed that they planned to use the poison on the Sheriff of Kent, Edward Guildford, for the earlier role in causing the arrest of some of Sinclair's friends. He also suggested that they'd earlier succeeded in killing the Chief Justices of one of the Central Courts, the Chief Justice of one of the Central Courts, John Martin of the Common Pleas, who really did die suddenly in 1436. We don't know if this is obviously true. All of this information... Goodgroom asked to be recorded in his mother tongue of English, since he understood neither Latin or French. All other surviving approver's statements were normally in Latin, so perhaps the coroners and clerks agreed because of the bizarre claims put forward. The King's Bench judges asked Goodgroom twice if he intended to maintain his appeal, i.e. go forward with his statement. The case, um, which he said he would do, the case against him was cast iron so he had no choice, really. When his fellow conspirators surrendered themselves and were investigated by the court, the case against them to support Goodgroom's statement could not be proved, and all were discharged. Goodgroom's inventive appeal had failed, and having accused the others of treason, he had to suffer a traitor's death, and the final part of the document shows, or describes, his hanging, drawing and quartering at Tyburn in May 1440, and the nailing up of his parts to the gates of London as a warning to other people who would turn King's evidence for plots that didn't really exist. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.